I'm Salvatesh. I'm Robert Rari. It's Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. And this is Quarantine Week of Casual Poor. Yes, this is our first Quarantine Week. We're doing this over Zoom. Everyone's doing podcasts, radio, over Zoom. Howard Stern's doing it over Zoom. Pod Save America was doing those over oh, Zoom. Oh, okay. Uh, last podcast on the left, left was doing those over Zoom. Um, I was listening to The Journal, The Wall Street Journal's podcast. Ryan yeah. Knutson was literally, said it on the show. He's like, I'm literally in my closet right now for good audio quality. See, there you go. It's the Wall Street Journal. There you go. <laughs> if, and, you know, if Howard Stern is doing it over Zoom, we're in good company. So first, we're going to talk about, obviously, we're going to talk about coronavirus, this thing called coronavirus. It's oh, that little thing. Yeah. Um, um, they're saying it could get bad. You know, I'm not sure. I'm kidding. Obviously, it's bad. We're all quarantined. We're in worst case scenario right yeah, now. We are we're in New York. all quarantined at home. This, we're, we're in the, we're, as Governor Cuomo would call it, the epicenter of the virus in New York. Um, so we're going to talk about what we're doing in each of our businesses, and then we're going to give some of our friends a call um, in different industries and around the country just to see what they're up to and, and some of their thoughts about coronavirus and how it's affecting their business. Um, then we're going to talk to Brett Harrison. Brett is the CEO and founder of Rumi. He's going to talk about what it's like to start a business in college and what it's like to play in an industry um, controlled by a lot of big players and how he's coming at the mattress industry in a totally new way. You know, those like piece of crap, uh, plastic mattresses, like vinyl plastic mattresses you get in your dorm rooms in college. They go in, they replace those with memory foam, super comfortable mattresses at a super affordable college. They rent it to you. They rent it to you. And then yeah, price. Right. And then what they do is after you leave college, they'll sell you on the mattress that you got so comfortable with while you were in college. Give away a secret sauce. Okay. I'm sorry. The next, that's like the, the, yeah. You're right. You're right. I'll let Brett tell you. Let Brett tell you. What do we talk about after Brett? And then we're going to talk about um, the future of gambling, what the big casinos were doing before coronavirus to stay relevant, what they're doing now to stay alive, and what the future of gambling and what the future of the casino industry could look like. Inside of gambling looks like. Yeah. Yeah. But first, let's talk about coronavirus. How you been holding up? (laughs) It's, what is it, day... uh, so actually, I, I, we, we did the show um, last Sunday. We recorded, we went to the studio, and then I went to work. I went to work Monday, and then I haven't left the house. So I really haven't left the house in seven days, really. I mean, I went for a walk yesterday, but I, I, I was watching TV. I was watching Netflix. I was watching the show called Love is Blind. Great show. Don't, no, no judgment whatsoever at all. It's a great show. And... I was so jealous that they were out to dinner. Like these people just, they went out to eat. Just <laughs> that they were like physically in a restaurant. They were physically next to in a people. restaurant. They were physically in a restaurant. So it was getting me crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm like half enjoying the time and half super stressed out. So we're in New York. So I'm, I'm in Brooklyn right now. You're in actual New York City. Proper New York City, and it's Brooklyn it a, is it, Brooklyn is in New York City, dumbass. But you're in, I said, you know, pro, okay, you're in Manhattan, Manhattan. Yeah, and Manhattan. isn't it? It's a go, what, it's a ghost town. I'm assuming because it's a ghost town here. It's weird. It's like yeah. uncanny. I live on the Lower East Side. Usually, 
on like a Saturday night. I literally discover new music on Saturday nights because people are just blasting it from their cars yeah. or screaming it on the streets or something. I literally find new songs that way. And you, there's like constantly this hum of a crowd it's crazy. and it's just dead quiet. Now also like I, I live like right next to a bunch of shops, bars, et cetera. And there's just nothing yeah. going on. I, my favorite coffee shop closed down this morning. They got um, they gave everyone their morning coffee. And then after that, they said, we're done until further notice. Thank God I picked up my laundry from the laundromat today because literally as I was walking in there, they were disinfecting everything for the last time until they shut down for short, uh, until further notice. It's crazy. What, um, what are you doing to, to stay busy? Uh, I picked up this, uh, this, this new trick with a tennis ball that I've been doing. Um, <laughs> By the way, I just want to make it known. We didn't, we didn't like, talk about this before so i don't know what he's talking about like it's not like oh we discussed oh you're gonna talk about the tennis ball thing i i, I have no idea what what you're gonna i have no idea what robert's gonna say i have no idea you really hyped it up okay look i i i, I slap a tennis ball up into the air then i like i slap both of my legs and then i slap the tennis ball back up into the air with the other hand before the tennis ball hits the ground been doing it for like hours a day i'm i'm probably the best in the country at it at this point How's, uh, how's, how's work? Work is good. <laughs> work is all online now. Um, work is effectively, you know, it's easy enough to run online. We were already running the entire company on Slack and on Airtable and on Zoom as it was. What's interesting is on 1H, what you're starting to see is actually a lot more startups signing up for 1H and investor activity going up on 1H. Cause, right, because they can't go out and meet. Exactly. So using your platform, that's very, that's interesting. If you think about it, right, there's no more networking events happening. There's no more angel group conferences or all these other different places where you would meet in person to find new investor leads. All of a sudden, all that is starting to gravitate online, like, like office communication moved from talking to people to being on Slack or meetings or meetings moved to Zoom conversations, Zoom calls, right? right? Fundraising is one and the same with all of that. You think valuations are going to come down? I mean, you could certainly imagine at this point that investors are going to be a little more cautious with their capital. But generally, I mean, we spoke about this in another episode, right? This isn't get VC isn't getting hit as hard as the stock market by any means, right? Where there are challenges, sure, is in like the operations of getting a deal done, right? Meeting with founders in person, um, doing on sites and things like that for your due diligence. But what you're not seeing is you know, investors are still investing, um, maybe not into as many new deals, right? A lot of the investors I've been speaking to are saying, I'm actually holding on to my capital to provide liquidity to our portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're going to see a little bit more of that. So I think you're going to see a lot more maybe flat rounds or bridge rounds coming in. Founders are hunkering down a bit more. Even if they're super well capitalized, they're still hunkering down. They're still trying to minimize overhead costs because God knows how long this is going to last. And really more than anything, God knows what we look like on the other side of it. Probably going to be more opposite right now. What, Epitesh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the consumer products are... Unless you're in the consumables business, which is food, drink, or, you know, paper towels or you know, consumables. Um, you know, consumer products and, and mainly for us, baby products, handbags, diaper bags, um, appliances. Yeah, it's not, it's not, they're not super essential. So, and we do a lot of business at Walmart and Target 
and we do a lot of business at retail. We do business on Amazon, but we do a lot of business on Walmart and Target. So the stores are closed, people aren't buying. So for us right now, it's, uh, it's playing it out. You know, it's uh, moving things around and, and slight damage control. Uh, and um, yeah, just trying to figure out how to sell as many products as possible in, in a time when stores are closed. Very likely you'll see a lot, and uh, going back to our, our discussion on Macy's and uh, department stores, which was a couple episodes ago, they're done. This is the final nail in the coffin for department stores. and um, this is going to be a big problem for a lot of retailers out there. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I've spoken to people that own retail stores and they're having problems. They're having problems. Like they can't, they can't buy products because people aren't buying products from the stores. They can't pay their people. I mean, retail is going to take a big hit. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what the world looks like when we get out of this. But let's, uh, let's get on the phone with some people. Yeah, let's talk to a couple people. First, we're going to talk to Aman Palavani. Uh, Aman is the founder and COO of Hungry. They're a corporate catering company uh, that's attracted investment from Jay-Z, Kevin Hart, Usher, and a ton of these other incredible investors. Um, and no one's in the office anymore. So it's going to be- He's in the catering business. I mean, he's in the food business, but he's B2B. in the office catering business. So yeah. it's literally competing with your Panera Breads where you're usually going for lunch. These guys have been going into offices and giving chef prepared meals via this marketplace of independent chefs. So we're so, going to call him up right now um, and see what he's thinking. All right, let's give him a call. Hello, this is Iman. Hey man, how's it going? You're on the line with me and Sal. Can you guys hear me? Perfect. Yeah, we could hear you. How are you liking quarantine? Uh, it is no fun. <laughs> it's no fun, man. It is. Uh, yeah, it's a nightmare for everybody right now. How are you holding up? You guys are out in D.C., right? Uh, yeah, headquarters is out in D.C., um, uh, but we've got, you know, seven other operations in seven other states that we're uh, checking in on every hour. Rather than, uh, you know furloughing the employees and, and just shutting things down. Um, we decided the, about the fourth, fifth day into this coronavirus spread to pivot the entire business to uh, a business to consumer business. Um, so we've got food and we've got logistics and, and people are hunkering down in their homes and they need food. So we essentially just shifted instead of sending the food to businesses. Now we just send them to families who, who are in need. So all seven mm. days have been hit. Heads down working on this for the last 10 days and uh, looks like we're launching uh, across the country on Wednesday. You guys are launching Hungry at Home across the country on Wednesday? Yeah, so all of our seven cities um, will we'll launch at the same time uh, and we'll begin to take orders and, and deliver um, you know, family-style meals to, to families in those seven cities. Got it. I always love how you guys always find a way to make it work. <laughs> we uh I, I i was not into the we just closed our series b lots of excitement everybody had energy and then corona hit and so there was no way we were gonna shut doors and, and just kind of wait it out yeah i don't think anybody was really ready yeah so uh we're uh we're looking good it looks like um uh kevin hart's gonna promote this because uh, he's donating a bunch of meals to um the elderly and first responders in philadelphia so 
he's gonna i think we're, we're trying to figure out what's the best uh avenue um but i think over instagram i think he has like 90 million followers he is going to um uh, essentially talk about what he did and, and how it was through the hungry at home platform so fingers crossed that that comes through oh hell yeah that's awesome yeah that'll, that'll put us on the map for for this new product offering hell yeah all right cool Amon. you're the man thank you for calling in and we will talk to you later right, good luck and that. stay safe thanks guys you too right. <laughs> i'll talk to you later all right that was great uh who do we got next uh, next up, we have Dan Fleischman, uh, VP at Kitchen Fund, a so, PE that invests into quick serve restaurants. Um, some of the notable ones are by Chloe, Sweet Green, Gregory's Coffee, Sweet Green, um, Hamas Cava, Cava, and a ton more. So he's going to so, talk a little bit about that. If you know the restaurant industry, it's getting hit probably one of the hardest right now, right next to airlines and hotels. So uh, it's going to be interesting to hear what what he's seeing right now in the restaurant industry um, and what his day-to-day is like currently. So uh, let's get him on the line. Yeah, let's, uh, let's invite him into the Zoom. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, welcome to the show, man. Thanks. How, uh, how's, how's everyone doing? We're, uh, we're, you know... Going fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, this is the last nine, I think about 10 days now. It's been pretty crazy. Just the velocity at which the markets have deteriorated is unprecedented. What are you guys seeing on your end um, for for some of the restaurants you work with? Well, restaurants, retail, no surprise there. It's, it's very challenging. So it's really a, a, a three-pronged attack here. It, it's one, it's keeping your employees and guests safe and, and communicating that well and putting all the procedures in place. Mm-hmm. Two, it's, it's really cost preservation. So making sure that you're just very thoughtful in what cash is going out of the business and just staying up to date with all the different local and state and federal laws that are being, that are being, uh, and different stimulus packages that are now being passed and, and help and implemented to help small businesses. So knowing what you need to do there, for example, depending on the state, you can actually defer sales tax and things of that nature. So staying on top of that and making sure you're just trying to preserve as much capital as possible. And the third piece is that once, if you're fortunate enough to, to really make it through this, it's, it's, you'll have some downtime. So just being thoughtful and what other initiatives you can be doing with this time to, to just be ready to, to bounce back and, and uh, get back in the mind share of your consumers if you aren't already. So how are like some restaurants that either like you're working with or that you know of kind of innovating or adapting to survive this? So the the it's in all the hot spots, so New York, Seattle, the Bay Area, it's 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 tough. And most restaurants won't stay open through this. You over the last few days, many have closed and you'll continue to see that over the next few weeks and some will reopen, some won't. Um, so the first piece is everyone's trying to do delivery, contactless delivery. I've seen yeah. some in, in more suburban markets that have actually done makeshift drive-throughs. And it's great, it's creative, but it, none of it's really going to help prevent you from the inevitable, which is likely going to close. Um, so, um, again, it's, it's really just have to keep your employees safe and, and customers safe and really conserve as much capital as possible so you can weather the storm. Some of these great restaurants that won't reopen, and I kind of worry that some of the 
restaurants that I like a lot to go to that may not reopen and it's a high likelihood that they won't. So that's, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's really unfortunate, but, uh, for us, we're going to do what we can to keep everyone safe, preserve cash and then come out of this and, and be prepared to, to serve our customers again. All right, cool. Now settle a debate for us. Are you wearing work clothes, sweatpants? <laughs> it's uh, sweatpants, but nice. I'm trying to keep some type of routine going for for the uh, for the work from home environment. Can't really go to the gym now. That was a big piece of my routine. Dan definitely puts on a, a, a sport coat in the house with a, with a college shirt. Yeah, uh, I, I don't really get I don't really get that aggressive. Uh, right now, it's more jeans maybe a polo, uh, trying to get more virtual happy hours. For, for us right now, it's, look, we're going to do what we can to support our portfolio. That's always the first thing we need to do. But just being thought leaders in the restaurant industry, we also need to be supporting the rest of our community. And we, we joined the uh, a coalition to really help get help with lobbying efforts for a lot of this federal relief because like, we fear that much of the government stimulus will be going towards airlines, hotels, casinos, and now autos and it feels like restaurants are kind of going to get left behind. So we're trying to do what we can there. And so, um, always that that's clearly where we need to be, uh, focusing and just bringing everyone together. Cause this is going to be rough. We're preparing for the shutdown like scenario for at least the next few months and depressed sales thereafter. So we really need to, to really be making sure everyone's prepared and then also bringing people together and keeping spirits up and sharing best practices. Keep doing what you're doing, and hopefully we could all make it through this shit storm in one piece. And grab dinner. And then hopefully grab yeah, dinner. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or vir- virtual dinner. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah. <laughs> all right, cool, Dan. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, of course. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. All right, Take cool. Care. I'll see you later. All right, bye. Bye. All right, that was, that was interesting. Um, we got Mej, Mej next, right? Uh, Mej Maksad, yep. He was... Yeah, I yeah, think you guys all probably know him if you listen to Casual Poor. We just did our last episode with Mejd and Status Money has actually been conducting some research into how people are spending money through coronavirus. So he's going to be giving us a little bit of a sneak peek into what Status Money is noticing. Let's get, let's get him online. Yeah. Hello. How's it going, man? Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, definitely. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I really missed you guys. We just couldn't wait. We just couldn't wait any longer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the world is moving so quickly now that, uh, you know, if you don't talk to somebody for 24 hours, uh, the world might be different the next time you do. It's true. This is true. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's fucking insanity. So Status Money has been doing a little bit of research into how individuals are spending, investing, yada, yada, through uh, coronavirus. Uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into kind of what you guys have learned? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of background here. Um, you know, we have built data partnerships with a number of financial institutions and data companies that enables us to run our platform, right? So the whole peer benchmarking, compare your finances to other people is built off of this data from millions of people across the country. So as soon as the market started to turn and and these quarantines started taking effect, we started to see some dramatic changes in how people were behaving. And obviously, the data itself was was really just um, 
showing us the uh, the scale of the impact. Um, and some of this research that we've been doing, when we've been communicating with some folks in the press, um, is really us trying to get the story out there because a lot of people still aren't buying it, <laughs> um, particularly if you're not in maybe New York or San Francisco or a few of these areas that have taken dramatic effect. You're watching the news and a lot of people, even friends of mine are saying, hey, is this thing for real? Uh, yes, it is. They're for still real, like, is this right? thing for real? Oh my God. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. And, and, and that's why a lot of, um, you know, uh, stricter measures have been enacted over the past few days. Uh, because people are still out and about, and, and there's all these stories about people partying it up in Miami. I mean, it's, it, it, it's really <laughs> scary. Um, but I'll tell you kind of just a few things that we've observed, um, and this is already outdated data, right? This data is from two days ago. I mean, it's already it's outdated. Right. But we saw nationwide restaurant spending was down 25%. Travel and entertainment were down 34%. Whoa. Groceries were up 70%, right? Wow. 70 percent, almost double. Think about that, right? Just groceries. You're talking about people going and buying, uh, you know, toilet paper. You're, you're talking about people. Uh, I don't know what that's about, uh, but stocking up on food. And if you look specifically in areas in California that have been impacted or New York City, the numbers are even worse, right? So restaurants travel down um, instead of 25% nationwide, in New York, it's over 40%. Mm. Right? And again, this is already outdated, right? So it's probably even harder than that. You're starting to see a shift of, of delivery and takeout, but that's no way going to compensate for, you know, going out and ordering a bottle of wine and doing all that stuff. That entire industry is in deep, deep trouble, right? And there's some nuances in how people have been reacting as well. So one of the very interesting things we've observed is uh, folks in California, go out and actually withdraw money from the ATM, right? So we're seeing ATM withdrawals up in, Cal up in California, 24%. <laughs> in New York City, they are down 44%. Interesting. You know, there's no, there's no drive-in banks in New York, right? You're not going out to, to, to your bank to, to, to go to the ATM to, to withdraw money. So it seems like maybe some folks in California are worried about a, you know, a shortage of cash, or maybe they want to have more cash laying around. New Yorkers don't care. So there's also these kind of nuances in how people are reacting to the news and to, you know, to the crisis as it unfolds. Um, look, the short of it is um, this thing is going to be with us for a while. And, you know, everybody needs to get prepared. And I'm not talking prepared in terms of toilet paper. I'm talking prepared in terms of, you know, think about your, you know, your financial cushion. Think about that emergency savings account that hopefully you've been working on. Uh, think about what you're doing with your, with your investments. And what we've seen is actually a major uptick to traffic to our website because people are actually wanting to <laughs> communicate with each other about what to do with, you know, with their finances, um, which is you know, great. This is part of what Status Money is all about. It's having that community, having that resource there for people. Um, but, but look, uh, I'm frankly concerned. Um, and, and hopefully this thing doesn't turn out to be as bad as it seems like it is right now. Wow. And then how are you guys at Status Money preparing for this or responding to this just operationally? Yeah. I mean, look, we, you know, as of more than a week ago now, we've been a hundred percent remote. Um, so we're lucky as a tech company, you know, we can be completely distributed and our team 
was partially distributed to begin with, and we just went 100% remote, and, and, and there was really no impact to our operations. Um, you know, so for us, I feel like, again, we're, we're kind of on the lucky side of this. Um, there are some companies, obviously, that are now a lot more valuable than they were even two weeks ago. Think about Zoom, right? Think about, mm. um, you know, companies that are just in the business of helping people, you know, operate remotely or, um, you know, um, manage, uh, manage their workflows remotely. So um, lucky for us, we're all good. We're all healthy. Um, but again, we're, we're watching the situation and, and um, just thinking about how we can prioritize certain features and, and, and make the platform even more powerful for this time that's, um, that's ahead of us. Wow. Crazy. All right, yeah. and then settle one debate for us. Um, this week, you've been wearing sweatpants, jeans. What have you been wearing that's not on the video chat? <laughs> I'll tell you, my, my wife looked at me a couple of days ago. Uh, well, I think it was either Thursday or Friday because I got up and I needed to get dressed, right? So I, I put down a button-down shirt and slacks, and she was <laughs> looking at me like, where do you think you're going? <laughs> but the, the, the truth is, it, you know, Take it for what it you know <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, but I feel like the way you dress actually affects the way you act and the way you interact with people and and just your overall mindset. So even though I'm not going to work, I'm at work, right? And and you know I think it's important to to dress the way you want to act, the the way you want to feel. I agree. Well said. Yeah, well yep. said. All right, cool, man. All right, thanks for calling in. All right, guys. Cheers. Manage right, care. Stay safe. You too, guys. That was interesting. That was interesting. Even the I, ATM, like the ATM withdrawal thing, I that did, was... Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, to be fair, I don't... Yeah. I mean, I great, I like, comparison between yeah. how Californians think and New Yorkers think. I'm like, totally... It's like a totally different... I didn't even know that drive-by... Drive-through ATMs existed until I was driving through New Jersey. I was really? like, what the hell? Yeah. I don't know. You don't see that. Maybe in that's why, because there's not a lot of drive-throughs here. Nobody wants to get out of their car. All right, next we're next getting uh, Kendrick Co. We're going right. to talk to Kendrick Co. He is a VC with Global Founders Capital. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, Global Founders is invested into some of the top companies in the world, including Facebook, Slack, Away, LinkedIn, HomeAway, Brex. Wow. Oh my God! Yeah, Capsule. You name it. I mean, and these are just like some of the names. They're invested in a ton, a ton of companies. So he's going to have some pretty interesting visibility into how VC is looking through this. Let's get another one. Yep. Hey, Kendrick. Hi, hey, man. This is Kendrick. Hey, man. Yeah. How's it going? It's going all right. How about you guys? Trying to stay comfortable. <laughs> Perfect. Are you both in New York right now? Yeah. I'm in Brooklyn. Uh, he's in uh, okay. Manhattan. Yep. Uh, fair enough. I'm still here in the... San Francisco Bay Area, but not San Francisco proper. So, what's it like out there? A little outside. Uh, I don't know. I haven't gone outside in a week. Right. <laughs> you and me both. So, there you go. Now we've been officially shelter in place since Tuesday. So, wow. Um, yeah. So, how are you know some of your portfolio companies reacting to this right now? I mean, can you give me just a little bit of an outlook? Also, like, what is VC funding looking like right now? Can you just give me a little bit of a look about mm. how the Bay Area is responding to this? Yeah, I think the Bay Area is very much waking up to the severity of the situation. Um, 
as far as my portfolio companies, you know, I can give you a snapshot, but some of them are, are well capitalized enough that they have over four years of runway. And wow. even they are thinking like, hmm, we should probably tighten up some things or cut back on the hiring plans. Cause every hiring decision, as you know, cuts into that runway, cuts, in, cuts into that potential cash position that they're looking at. We have other portfolio companies that are very much impacted by the market or have been you know, planning for like a Q2, Q3 fundraise. That's always a little nerve wracking because we'll probably see fundraises continue maybe Q3, but probably Q4. And then there's going to be a backlog of demand there. Um, we've cautioned our portfolio companies is to aim for a minimum of 15 months of runway. And really, for some of the more impacted businesses, if they can get to 24 months of runway, that's probably the best position. Because you can imagine six months um, for this to subside, and then another few months for capital to return, and then another few months to prove out the model again, where the assumptions around customer acquisition costs or marketing or unit economics all have to be tested again within the new environment where consumers may be spending differently. Um, maybe there's different competitors. Maybe people have cut back and, and it's a longer term trend. Um, so we've, we've definitely been thinking, you know, in the, in the time span of several months to two years. Um, now, as far as VC funding goes, you know, I think a lot of people say they're open for business. And then there's another subset of funds and investors who have uh, pulled back and are waiting to see what comes out of the mess. I think when I talk to my colleagues at different funds, the, they really do range that whole spectrum where some of them are still not worried. Um, except for their existing portfolio companies, while others say they won't really be too active externally for another six months. They're all focused on their own portfolio companies. They're all focused on internal operations. So that's how it is. I think some people view this situation to be on, you know, maybe a few weeks' time. I think I'm of the opinion that this is more uh, several months of, uh, of a situation, and we'll see the impact of that. Um, for the next year, at least. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, the whole world is on fucking fire right now. So it's <laughs> the um, actually, let me ask you: when yeah. it comes to like on-site due diligence or like a meet and greet with the founders before you actually close the deal, looking the guy in the eye, shaking their hands, etc. How are you guys responding to that? Because Global Founders Capital leads deals, participate in big rounds. That's right. We have canceled our diligence trips. Uh, in the past two weeks, and those were to New York, um, Texas, so on and so forth. In fact, Y Combinator is a big um, organizational initiative. And last Y Combinator, we had people fly in from Germany, Brazil, other parts of the world. Um, and this time, they were preempted. They proactively said, we are not going to fly out to the Bay Area. That being said, we've, we've invested in companies um, without any face-to-face -face interaction. Um, and so we're comfortable with that. We're a global organization, 20 offices, so we interact quite often through Zoom. 
Um, maybe we wouldn't do that for the bigger checks, of course. Right. But uh, we're quite comfortable for most of our investing to have never met the people in face to face. So we're not as impacted as a fund who might want to bring an entrepreneur into their offices, spend two hours there, or to visit the entrepreneur's offices um, and spend half a day there. Uh, we're not as impacted because this is very standard for how we operate already. Got it. Okay, cool. And then um, do you want to just settle a quick debate for us? Um, <laughs> during this week, uh, pants, jeans, sweatpants, no pants, what's been going on? What do we got? For me, sweatpants. Oh, nice. Yep. Sweatpants. Uh, that- collared shirt still. You know, everything on, <laughs> everything on the video chat still looks good. But everything out of shot is uh, a little less fun than put together. Me and Robert <laughs> said the pants industry is going to take a big hit. <laughs> Maybe. We'll, we'll see about that. Big pants. Yeah. I like it. Mapping the market out. Yeah. Looking at what's underpriced and overpriced. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, cool, man. Thanks for calling in. Of course. Thank you for having me. Take care. Stay safe. Cheers. All right, stay safe. Bye. All right, that was uh, that was cool. Cool is a weird word for it. No, that was cool. Like the whole calling people in and um, oh, like the the format of what we just tried. yeah yeah. So, yeah, that was fun. Like Amon, like what Kendrick just I was like yeah. <laughs> like Amon's in DC, right? Amon's in DC, right? Yeah. So Amon's in DC. Um, Kendrick is out in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Dan and Mejder in New York. Dan and Mejder in New York, but at this point, I mean, everything is across the country. We're not allowed to leave our houses. Yeah, so we're gonna do that. We're gonna do that more often now. And I and I just got a notification that um, the major U.S. airlines are drafting plans to ground all, uh, virtually all domestic flights in the United States. Really? Yeah. So they're gonna need big help from the government, but we'll get there. Um, but on a more positive note. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk to Brett now. Uh, let's talk to Brett Harrison, CEO of Roomy Mattresses. Let's get him on the line. Hey, Brett. Ah, uh, you said he has to just go grab a charger quickly. Okay. And we are back with Casual Poor. Uh, today, we are sitting down with Brett Harrison, CEO and founder of Rumi. Brett, welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. We, we, we would have liked to have you in person under better circumstances, but yeah, <laughs> no, we'll take what we can get. Well, now it just feels like I'm doing my daily Zoom conference with my boys. So Are you doing, you're doing Zoom happy hours? We're, we're like dipping our toes. We still haven't quite figured it out. Nice. We introed you in the beginning of the episode, but from your perspective, give us a quick overview of what Rumi does, and then we'll dive further in. Yeah. So we rent beds to college kids and then sell them a brand new version when they graduate. So we're currently on around 20 campuses. Uh, most of what we do is we take the bed that the dorm gives you, the twin size, and we turn it into a full using kind of proprietary technology. And so by doing so, we're essentially getting college kids to pay us to try our products. And then when they graduate, it's one of the only times in your life you can be pretty certain they're going to have to buy a bed. So we also sell them a real mattress, their first real mattress when they graduate. And I mean, 60% of college students can't name a mattress brand. And so there's no sort of, the traditional players aren't really focusing on them. And so most of the companies that have great brands haven't yet 
gotten in front of college students. So we try to be the first one in their minds and then, you know, so far so good. How do you keep them, how do you keep them engaged? I know, I know it's one thing for them to know. How do you get college students involved? First of all, what's that marketing like? Um, getting college students when they move into college and going, oh, I'm going to call Rumi. Most of the time we don't do that much business with freshmen. And so with every school, we have a, you know, campus co-founder, general manager, whatever you want to call them that we bring on and they kind of become, get a entrepreneurship 101, but it's risk-free for them to really start and grow their own business because we provide the capital. They don't have to put up anything. All we ask for is their time and, you know, creativity. And so we have a co-founder at each campus that we then work with to market to all of the students. So whether that's, you know, sliding postcards under doors, doing in-person demos with a bed set up on the quad, or emailing out to students, or creating a social page, or, you know, getting in touch with all team captains and clubs and getting into the group me's. Like we find ways to just spread the net wide as possible. But the best marketer for us is our product. Because at these schools, you know, you spend a lot of time in your friends' bedrooms, unlike any other time in your life. And so the first thing that you see when you walk into a dorm room at Harvard is that, whoa, how do you have a bigger bed? And you see, whoa, this is actually a really unique product because you didn't have to bring in your own frame. You didn't have to bring in your own mattress. You don't have to deal with storing it at the end of the year. And then you sit on it and it's like, oh, this feels like a real bed. This is extremely comfortable. Um, and so the, the word of mouth is usually the strongest marketer for us. Interesting. I know you did something similar to this in college. Yeah. When you were in college. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that, starting a business in college, what's that, what that's like, and then how come you didn't say, oh, you know, this, you know, this is roomy, let's just keep this going, because I know you, you went and worked at other places as well. Yeah. I mean, the story's kind of funny. So our freshman year, a bunch of guys and I, we got an email that was from this company called Dart Dorm that was a futon rental business. And they were like, hey, we're seniors, we're selling. And so a bunch of my friends and I said, this is a great thing to put on our resume, let's buy. We each took a few thousand bucks that we saved up you know, over summer jobs and then bought the business. And the first year we grew Wait, it- you bought at, a company in college? Yeah, from a group of Dartmouth seniors. That is so wild. Yeah, there's a whole culture of it at Dartmouth. It's wild. So there were two furniture rental companies, and then there's one company that like, does um, T-shirts for Greek life and, and events and things. And so there was a culture of it at Dartmouth. And so we bought in, took it over, doubled the futon rental business the first year, and then started thinking about what other students would want and quickly came to beds. And so what we did because we didn't want to go invest in buying 100 beds wholesale. We put beds on the website, and then we started advertising and um, took in as many orders as possible and used that revenue to then buy the beds. And so we had a negative kind of cash flow cycle, which was great, in that we were taking in the cash to ultimately pay for the In At a school like Dartmouth or any other you know, prestigious school, you feel a lot of competition with your classmates and in getting internships and whatever, and I saw it as a real way to differentiate yourself. But also, Dartmouth doesn't have a business program. So we were all econ majors, but we had some history and things like that, but we wanted like to wait. You guys are buying and selling companies from each other and there's no business program? Why? There's no business program. It's a liberal arts school. Mm. So, um, but yeah, and that was kind of how it started. And one thing that was really great about this business was that 90% of the work 
is at the beginning of the term before classes start and at the end of the term after classes are done. <laughs> and so that's when move-ins and move-outs are done. And so that's where you really have to just show up for two or three days. And this is why it's such a great program for our college entrepreneurs. It's because the, during the year when you want to be having fun, when you want to be focusing on classes, extracurriculars, athletics, whatever, we don't ask anything. And it's, all we want is you really need to show up and move in and move out. And then over the summer, do marketing and over, some stuff over the spring. Obviously cut short this year, but um, you know, yeah. that's why it makes a really awesome program because you get this resume bump, you get this entrepreneurial experience, but you also don't have to be annoyed on a Monday night at seven o'clock when you have a midterm the next day to say, hey, come move out of bed. That's very, very rare. Right, right. Yeah. And so then we just kind of grew it from there and launched this bed angle. And then again, I saw this is a great business. It, it's pretty profitable in the first year. And so let's go see if we can manage it at another school without actually really having to be there all the time. So expanded to Middlebury and Duke with, um, so I went to Middlebury by myself and then I kind of brought on a partner, Rob King, who's still involved in the business. Mm-hmm. And um, we expanded to Duke and Cornell. And then going into our senior year, I already had a, full-time job at Polaris Partners, which is a venture capital firm in Boston. So Rumi hadn't been started by the time I accepted a job in BC. And then we still expanded senior year, actually started Rumi. And then it was- So you were still running the business while working somewhere else. It was was a little bit of a side thing. Yeah, it was a side thing. And then we kind of grew some of the businesses, but I was pretty heads down with VC and some of my other, we brought on a third partner. And so we were all kind of doing our own things. And then um, we sold off some of the businesses at Duke and Vanderbilt and um, just kind of focused on other projects for a few years. But two years ago, came back to it and have been doing it full-time since. What was the thought process there? Why did you decide to come back to it? I always regretted not, co- I always regretted not doing it full-time. Ah. You know, the, product, the kind of product market fit that we get at every school is so strong that it's, I've done two other startups, both of which you know, had exits and were acquired. but even with both of them, we never got that kind of product market fit where our customer acquisition cost was really low and the business just grew organically. And so I always regret not doing Rumi full-time and, and the stars kind of aligned two years ago and came back. That actually kind of reminds me of uh, kind of what uh, Justin Lafazan said in one of our other episodes. We interviewed uh, the head of NextGen in one of our other episodes. And one of the things he said is, run your business in the beginning part-time until it gets to the point where you can't run it part-time anymore, that you shouldn't yeah. run, run it part-time anymore. De-risk it, de-risk it, de-risk it, then go out to raise money for it, then go and pursue it full-time. Yeah. I mean, that just gives you the flexibility where you can test, test, test your product market fit until you feel comfortable enough to really take the job. It's always going to be a, at least a little bit of a job, but um, you know, yeah, as much as you can de-risk it and step back and really think about the startup that you're coming into. Because regardless of the industry, running a startup is an insane, insane task to take off. The first couple months are fun, but then, like, you know, I'm yeah. two years into this, we're doing, the business is doing well, growing a lot. And still, I had to, on a Thursday morning, go to Columbia by myself and move out 30 beds alone. Jeez. Huh. And so, like that, and, you know, a, a software startup founder might not have to deal with that kind of, you know, bullshit but still has to 
be up with the server crashes at two in the morning and you have to be up and dealing with it and no one else is going to do it. Speaking of side hustles, I mean, a huge part of Rumi's model here is also empowering college students to be able to advertise this on their own campus. Yeah. So could you kind of walk us through that? I mean, it sounds like there's a bunch of these, these mini pop-up versions of Rumi that exist. Yeah. So Rumi, um, all of our branches have their unique brands because we feel that the local branding resonates well with college students. College students like to support other college students. And so Yale is Bulldog Beds, you know, um, Tulane is Waking Wave Rentals. And so everything has its local branding and everything okay. has its our local kind of campus co-founder who supports the business and really comes on as a partner. And so we find, you know, we find a school that we like and first we recruit a student and then we work with that student to get approved by the administration. And then from there we work with them to do marketing and operations. Um, and so for the student, like we've discussed, it's a great resume builder. It's a great way to get business experience, whether it's marketing, operations, finance, you know, pitching the administration is really akin to what pitching an investor is like. They have to get someone to really buy into their vision. I would have loved to have this in college. Yeah. I mean, trust me when I say that pitching an administrator, a res life, you know, bureaucrat uh, is much, much, much more difficult than pitching an investor. Um, Very interesting. It's one of the hardest pitches I can think of. Um, You know, college administrators, very, very tough crowd. So I get why, obviously, you want to sell more mattresses. But what's exactly in it for the college student? Yeah, so it's, it's really um, three things. So we covered the entrepreneurial experience, and they get paid extremely well. For the operational students, um, it's over you know, $50 an hour usually. For the, but it's just the problem is there's only a couple of days of move-ins and move-outs. So really good hourly wage, not that many hours. Um, for the marketers, and sometimes you're both an operator and a marketer, again, if they do 100 beds their first year, it's five grand in their pocket. So that's a lot for a college student. And we've nice. had students who have done that. And then fourth, and what I see as most importantly, is again, that resume builder. And so when we find a campus co-founder, they come into an interview and it doesn't say Rumi brand ambassador on the resume. It says co-founder of Lion's Den Rentals at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I co-founded a business at Columbia University that's now doing $50,000 of revenue. That's going to get the interviewer's attention. And right. so when they come to our website, the lionsdenrentals.com, they don't see Rumi. Rumi has a presence, but it's really about the co-founder. And so they're on it. They're on the website. It's their business. It's locally branded to them. It's all about Columbia. And so that's why we've done really, really well with placement in especially most of our entrepreneurs tend toward being interested in consulting finance tech. And so we've done extremely well in those industries. We've had people go to Apollo, Bain Consulting, Bain Capital, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Amazon, kind of you name a prestigious firm or a great internship or a great job, we probably have placed someone there, um, whether it's investment banking, consulting, or tech. And also, because it's repetitive and cyclical in nature and that we are always feeding kids into those, biz- into those firms, they, when they see a roomy resume, they not only recognize it, but they know what it takes to be successful. And so they, that resonates with them when they see a younger co-founder. And we have had that happen where one of our guys reached out to me and says, hey, I actually just interviewed your, um, your guy at Penn. Actually, our Penn guy 
just was applying for a job at Spectrum Equity uh, VC from Boston. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys who's at Spectrum now was involved in one of the Dartmouth furniture rental companies because there were a few at Dartmouth. And he called me up and said, hey, how's this guy um, at your pen guy? And I said, he's great. And he knew what it was like to build that business. And they just took it over, but our pen guy built it from scratch. And he was extremely impressed with that. And now our pen student got a, a job in VC right out of school, wow. which is extremely difficult and you know, very coveted. So I could understand that actually on like, you know, as the founder of Rumi, I could understand how you got your first school onto it or your first couple of schools onto it. You guys have been expanding incredibly quickly into new and new schools every single, I mean, it seems like every single week or at least more than once a month. And so how is that happening exactly? I mean, how are you creating, because these are all kind of closed ecosystems, right? It's not like students from Penn are talking to students from GW or something about their mattress company or who they're working for. Yeah. How is that? I mean, how are you creating a brand from scratch on a new, or at least a reputation from scratch? in different schools. The product is cool and it sells itself. And we're very lucky to have a product that that students want and that is very difficult to get yourself. But part of it is finding just a great person. And we've been doing this long enough where we have a playbook with when we start to go to a new school, we do X, Y, and Z. And that guarantees us, you know, 10 to 20 quality leads. Then we interview those 10 to 20 people. And then we find our team of one or two or, you know, at most three people. And then Again, we just go through the approval process and we meet with everyone on the campus and then we start marketing, doing on-campus stuff through the spring, doing digital stuff through the summer, and then a final push, digital and on-campus in the fall. And so again, it's just making sure people know about it, making sure people know it's legitimate. And those are kind of the difficult things. And But once we do that, then it's just about organic growth and we see that snowball effect build at every school. All of our campuses are still growing and some of them have been going for six years. Got it. And so, I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, it's, it's once you're in on a college campus, it's just network effects, network effects, network effects, and then upsells because you've got buddies walking into each other's dorm rooms and saying, oh my God, this mattress is insane. Where did you get it? You've got people moving, you got people referring their friends to even probably even start these, you know, become campus co-founders with them and help them hustle through selling. Sounds, and then for, once they leave campus, it's, Hey, you've been using this mattress for a pretty long time. Don't you want to know the brand that it comes from? Here is, you know, an adult version of that mattress for your first apartment. Yeah. 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 How are you guys dealing with uh, Corona? So, um, you know, very, very lucky that Corona didn't hit on August 1st and that it hit on March 1st instead. Um, So we are working with our schools to get everything out of the dorms. Um, We've gotten about 50% of our rentals out and now they're you know being stored and being cleaned um the other 50 percent are at schools that are just saying this is a very low priority for us getting your beds out deal come back in a few weeks when things have settled down we say great that's perfect for us right um you know so it's frustrating that we are we mainly feel for our students and our renters it's extremely frustrating for the students that we've been working with to get their business approved for next year might be cut short. It's frustrating that our renters who, you know, wanted to enjoy this bed for the rest of the year had to have it taken from them and that they have to move out. But, you know, we will be doing something and hopefully something that, you know, is very generous. Um, but we just have to figure out what we're doing, these, how to get them out and not lose, you know, 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of mattresses in the process. Um, because some of these schools, you know, I was at Harvard and Harvard just threw out a third of our beds because the, it was our first year, the building managers didn't know what they were. And so we're trying to prevent that. So then we can, you know, have more cash to then ultimately refund or offering credits to, to our renters. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really, really tough situation, especially because, you know, the way a business's cash cycle works, it, if you have a huge, huge demand for refunds, it's very, very hard to satisfy that when you weren't planning on it from a cash perspective. So we're applying for SBA relief. We're applying for all of these things to help us get some cash in the door to hopefully pass on to our customers. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's crazy. But what, whatever we're going through pales in comparison to you know, hun- tens of thousands of seniors who now don't get to have graduation, don't get to have their senior spring, and also other businesses that have really had to shut their doors we don't take in our revenue between, you know, January, February, March, April, May. And so hopefully this will quiet down by the time our really busy season comes in. Um, but, you know, just feeling for all the businesses out there that don't have that luxury of just timing. I mean, so it's, like, it's not like foot. there's any like real rule book. You know what I mean? This is completely unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what would have happened if like this happened before the internet. Yeah. Oh, I, I've been saying that all the time. Like, yeah. If we couldn't use our phones or connect with each other and the internet just didn't exist. Yeah. Wild, wild. The whole world would have really fallen apart in that scenario. At least now it's just a little more frustrating to run things operationally, but it's not like the whole world is, has to literally shut off and go dark now. Yeah. Our whole world. But if you, if you run a restaurant, it's, it's a little bit different of a story. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is true. All right. So. All right. Uh, yeah. Final we, question. Uh, Final question. We ask all our guests this question at the end of every episode. Is entrepreneurship born or made? You can't say both. Um, I think it's made. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I always fall on the more nurture side of things. Um, I think some people have been made into, shaped into a situation where entrepreneurship comes extremely difficult for them um, because it's something you really have to have grit. And no matter how things go, you just kind of have to keep going. And the, the winds are so few and far between. And the deep, deep valleys are constant and, you know, don't seem to stop. But um, especially we were, we were really thinking we were on the up and ups. And then it's always good to get humbled by a kick in the face like Corona. Yes. Yeah. Well, so. actually, just one follow-up question to that. Because you are not only an entrepreneur yourself, but you were literally like creating entrepreneurs at their earliest of stages at these different schools. Yeah. You, you know, albeit an odd entrepreneur through Rumi, but you are creating these entrepreneurs from scratch on top of being one yourself. So you're exposed to a ton of these guys almost at their like entrepreneurial inception. Yeah. What kind of structural things have you noticed people who are becoming entrepreneurs have versus people that aren't becoming entrepreneurs have? Well, uh, all I can speak to is that we f- tend to find a, sp- a specific personality does well. We've really zeroed in on what does well on our operation side. Someone pretty athletic who does an endurance sport, thinking like lacrosse, hockey, sports like that, do extremely well on the operation side. They, those guys can move beds for two days straight and be fine and pumped and we pay them well. And, you know, a lot of times we look for people that 
had a landscaping business in high school. So you know they're okay working with their hands. You know they can work hard for a day or two. And we know that they have hustle for money and that they just want to make, you know, that they'll do what it takes to make a, a good amount of money. And so that on the operation side is what we look for. Just hustle, grit, being really responsive. Um, and then on the marketing side, it's a bit different of a personality. So it's just someone who, that's more of the classic entrepreneur, someone who's really hungry. Again, the hustle's there, but that they just want to tell everyone and anyone about this business and just cast that wide net. And whenever they get a no, they're, look, they're already five steps ahead thinking of five other things they can try. Um, I mean, in our, and in our business, that's what it is. It's just not taking no from an answer, whether it's from an administration or a prospective renter, and just hitting them again or convincing them that it, we're really great to work. We interviewed Carol LaForgia, and um, she said it best, no just means not now. So yeah, yeah. love that quote. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I was talking to an administrator from a college two days ago. Um, we'd had a scheduled call for like a month. And he was a you know, director of res life at a school that I've been working on for two years. And it's just at the beginning, it was no. And then a year ago it was not right now. And then this one, we've, I feel like we finally turned a corner. Um, yes. but yeah, we, get, we get schools that just shut us out. And like, I just tell the, the kids that we're working with, I'm not taking no for an answer. So I'm just looking for the same thing. Um, that if you're, we're probably going to get told no, and I want you to be there with us calling parents, getting a list of 50 parents who have committed to calling into res life, getting students to sign a petition and call into res life, getting students to do a walk-in. We are finding someone on the school newspaper to write an article. We're not, we are not going to stop at, cause we have our list of schools and we are not stopping until we get to all of them. And so we just look for people that have that same mindset. That is the most important thing for us. Will you respond to a text or a phone call pretty quickly? And will you not take no for an answer? Are you going to be a team player or not? Um, and again, we have a very specific, weird business, but that's just what we look for in our partners. Love it. You love to hear it. That's awesome. You're the man. Um, I think that is, I think we're all set. Yeah, that was really awesome. great. Awesome. Guys. All right, cool. Brett, thank you so much for coming in or at least dialing in, video yeah. conferencing in. Zooming in. Zooming in. Zoom yeah. in. I like that. Want to call it. Thanks for having me. We'll do it. We'll do it in person next time. Yes, next absolutely. Time. Twice as many drinks to make up for it too. And you're and you're always welcome back on the show. You just stop by the studio. Well, we'll, we'll send you. We'll, you know, when we're in a studio. We'll, yeah, sure. When we're not all on Zoom. Yeah, we get it. We're all on Zoom. This is quarantine week. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks, Brett. You're the man. All right, guys. Have a good Thanks. one. Yeah. Right, cool. Talk to you later. And we are back with Casual Pour. That was Brett Harrison. Our first Zoom interview. Our first Zoom interview. Zoom interview. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. work. It doesn't doesn't work. work. It does not work. We'll come up with a better pun. All right. Let's talk about the (laughs) casino industry Um, with coronavirus. Obviously, um, the casino stocks have been getting hit hard. Wynn Resorts is down about 60% from their all-time high. MGM Resorts is down 70, about 70% from their all-time high. Um, if you compare that to the Dow, the Dow is down about 30, as of this recording right now, down about 
So almost twice as much as the rest of the market. Yeah. Well, I mean, they rely on people being at the casino, you know? And so before then, the casino, I think everyone was a little confused if casinos were still hot. And what I mean by casinos is is the gambling part. Because if you look at MGM's earnings, you're seeing that food, beverage, and and entertainment is becoming more profitable or I guess has more revenue than the gaming revenue for MGM. For Wynn Resorts, because they're mostly based out of um, a lot of their businesses done in Macau, China, and they were having issues before because of the riots in China, a lot of their business comes from gaming and mainly VIPs that come in, very, very rich Chinese come in to play at Wynn Resorts in China. So, mm. so I guess the question is, when Corona's over, is casino gaming are, are casinos going to still be hot? I mean, are people just going to gamble online? Do people still want to go to casinos? Where's the future of that going? I guess that's the question. People are still going to go to casinos. Yeah. I don't think that I don't think that goes away. Um, I mean, people have been going to casinos for literally hundreds of years. I think since the 1700s is when the first casino was ever legalized in the United States. Uh, so people are not going to stop going to casinos. I don't think that, I don't think the casino industry itself is dead, but I think like everything else, it's going to have to evolve. It's been evolving. I mean, if any, uh, if anyone has been, you know, investing pretty heavily into tech, it has been casinos. Imagine all these casinos now having all as much data and analytics on people and you specifically what you like and what you don't like. Vegas is literally. Disney World for adults. If they can learn what you like and what you don't like, they'll serve it up to you constantly. There's nothing in Vegas that they don't have. I mean, they literally have restaurants that I love to go to here in New York. They have in Vegas. It's insane. And if you look at what MGM is doing, so what MGM is doing is they own a ton of real estate in Vegas and a ton of casinos. They're going with an asset light strategy. And what that means is they're actually selling off their real estate. So they just sold off mm. the Bellagio and another resort, resort they own called Circus Circus, and they're taking in the cash. What they want to do is they want to become basically an operator of casinos and shops. They also want to use that money to expand into Japan, spend a lot of money in Japan and become the main casino company in Japan. And then they also want to become huge, huge in sports betting. So there, I find it interesting. I, I would consider that a double bet on casinos because they're literally going into the operating business for casinos. They don't want to own the real estate. Right. So they're getting rid of what could be the hedge, right? Is I still have this huge asset yes. in prime Las Vegas or, you know, prime Macau. Yeah. But, you know, they're getting rid of that and saying we're doubling down on, no, we just want straight up restaurant gambling revenue, et cetera. You think people are only going to bet online? People, no. Uh, at least not casino betting uh, online. I don't think, uh, I mean, look, it's an $100 billion, more than $100 billion industry right now. Um, it's been growing by exponentially since it was first really introduced in the early 2010s. I think 2012 is when it first came onto the market. Um, people are using it, but the, I mean, there's, a, there's that feeling. I mean, I've, I'm not a big gambler. But there is, yeah, uh, but there is a culture around being in the casino that's not going away 
anytime soon. There's a rush when that slot machine is deli- is shitting out is shitting out money for you. There is that rush when the whole crowd cheers when you nail it at roulette. There is still that rush, and that's what drives these guys to keep ba- keep gambling, keep gambling, keep gambling at these places. So, and that's why MGM Win and all these guys have been investing like crazy into building loyalty, not just to their brands, but to the actual casinos. They're like literally investing in facial recognition technology so that they could see who's walking into their casinos and build loyalty programs around the people specifically walking into their casinos. What I do think is going to change or what I do think you're going to see more of online is a little more let's call it data-driven betting or betting where you have a little more control of the outcome. For example- Online or in the casino? Both, but especially online. Right. right? You could look at sports betting. You know the players that you're betting on. You know the teams that you're betting on. It's not like you're just betting that, it's not like you're betting on a specific roll of the dice or you're hoping that you, know, that you don't go bust in blackjack. It's based on what you know. It's informed decisions. It's almost like investing into a stock at that point. Uh, same thing goes for even like political bets, right? On predict it, right? Bet about who's winning the primary or who's winning the general election, and they're interesting benchmarks for how the country, you know, th- you know how likely people think different candidates are to win. You know, I I, I think that side of it is going to continue, and in that side of it's certainly going to grow. Um, and that's something that online is really going to be incredible for. I don't think you're ever going to lose the experience of walking into a casino. But I think gambling and betting in general is going to expand online. I agree. It's kind of data-driven betting. I agree. I agree. And I think the experience of being, so put, putting betting aside, I think the, these casinos are insane resorts, right? And I think that that's only going to get bigger and better. Obviously, coronavirus is, is hindering on a lot of growth. But if, you've, if you experience these resorts and you go to Vegas and, and, and everything they have from the shops to the restaurants to the rooms themselves, these people are experts at creating world, world, world-class experiences. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get charged through the roof, although you know that's up to you. But I think if you do want to get from from an investor standpoint, if you do want to get in on um, the casino stocks, maybe it's a good time. But I always bet on consumer experiences, and the fact that these people literally specialize in the people that are running these casinos specialize in consumer experiences on a grand level in person is insane. And nobody nobody does it better than them, except Disney World. Of course, that's for kids. So, um, gambling itself, where yeah, gambling's not going anywhere. Casinos aren't going anywhere. They're just going to be way smarter about which what data they have and how they can cater to you. And then, of course, online gambling is only going to get bigger and better. But that I, I think we're both in agreement that that's not going to hit. Not going to hit in person gambling. Do you think that it's almost comparable to retail in terms of like? how they have to innovate and how they have to be investing into their experiences. Because like you hear almost the same exact kind of buzzword or like the same exact um, advice for how retail brands are supposed to be able to survive or how department stores are supposed to be able to survive. Do you see that as like kind of parallel in uh, casinos? A hundred percent. Because if if these casinos didn't build all these grand, amazing shops, experiences, 
entertainment options into their hotels, unlikely that people would just go just to go gamble. So that's a big part of how they're innovating. Of course, you have data and analytics, but they didn't just stick with gambling, right? That's not just their thing. Now it's all about upselling room, upselling them on rooms, upselling them on food, upselling them on entertainment options. So that was a big point of innovation. Years ago, you went to the casino, you went to the casino just to gamble. Like, right. You know, there weren't restaurants in these giant, huge buildings. And um, there were entertainment options, but they weren't necessarily in your hotel. You don't have to ever leave your hotel in Vegas. And I think that's the point. Yeah. They all want you to just walk into the building and never leave because the longer you stay in that building, the more likely you are to spend money. Same right. goes for retail. Same goes for gambling. Right. All right. I think we'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think we'll leave it at that. Um, stay safe, everybody. Yeah. Seriously, seriously, seriously. I know that. I know that it's very easy to feel like people are overreacting to this. And don't go outside. God, no, you're not special. No, I know you think you can go out. I was talking to someone on the phone yesterday and he's going to listen to this. So he knows who he is, but oh yeah, we'll go get a bagel. Let me go. I need some smoked salmon. I really want a bagel with locks. Don't, don't go to the bagel. Don't, don't go out. Don't go out. Look, he said it in more in less politically correct terms or less diplomatically than I was going to say it, but he's absolutely right. Guys order in. That's what I've been moving to anyways. Um, Order in food if you need to go, if you want restaurant quality food. Video chat your friends over Zoom or over FaceTime. I'm doing Zoom weddings. People are getting married and they're not, they don't want people together. No way. They do their wedding on Zoom. I got a conference call with someone and he goes, I got to hang up early. I got a Zoom wedding I got to get to. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can't really show up fashionably late to these things. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, <laughs> Which is better. You don't have to get dressed, but obviously not preferred. Yeah. Anyway. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget to like, share, comment, follow, subscribe, subscribe all of it. Casualpour.com. Again, thank you to Daniel Lerner for our theme music. And thank you to Evan Parnes for our album art. And um, yeah, follow us on Instagram at casualpourpod. Follow us on Twitter at casualpour. And like us on Facebook. All right, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>